From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest in this episode is Nilifer Merchant, a master at turning seemingly wild ideas into new realities. She has personally launched more than 100 products, netting $18 billion in sales for companies ranging from Apple to Autodesk. Nilfer was awarded the Future Thinker Award from Thinkers 50, and we talk in this conversation about her latest book, The Power of Onlyness. Make your wild ideas mighty enough to dent the world. Nilifer then lays out a strategy based on her research and illustrated with compelling stories of real people innovating to produce positive change, a strategy that anyone can use to eliminate biased thinking and maximize the impact of their distinctive ideas, the ones that occur to you because no one else has your experience and your story, and your place in the world. And now, listen, learn, and be inspired about how to make innovation happen from Nilifer Merchant, and then as a bonus, from one of the listeners who called in to the radio show. Nilifer Merchant, welcome to our show. I am so glad to be here. What a nice introduction to you. Well, it's great to have you here. So you and I, um, we met, in fact, we met in London at the Thinkers 50. I don't know if you remember. I certainly remember. Uh, and, uh, Despite the cocktails, I do remember. And, and congratulations on the just announced shortlist for the Breakthrough uh, Idea Award. We also hung out at South by Southwest a, a couple years ago. You've been on the show when the, the idea of onlyness was just like percolating. I'm sure it's been percolating for like decades but really coming to fruition as a book. And you've built on this idea of onlyness and, and produced this wonderful book that's a call to action. It's, it's how to have your unique voice heard and your ideas have an impact, to make a dent. So for our listeners, describe, if you will, what, what this concept of onlyness is in essence. And, and then what led you, what experiences led you to bringing this concept forward? Sure. Um, let me just start with how this idea got first conceived, because I'm not normally a person who coins new words, and yet in this case I did. Um, it was back in 2011, 2012, and I was trying to capture this notion of how talent has fundamentally changed. And it wasn't just about uh, way back when, you know, a couple hundred years ago, talent was about your body. Mm-hmm. If you could stuff something into a cotton gin, you were qualified as talented. And then there came a time when we were on a production line and it mattered how fast you could do something. And then about 50 years, it was about whether or not you could get access to capital. And this modern time, talent is about ideas. And yet 
the thing that we often struggle with in our, in especially given work and life construct, is talent is often too narrow, uh, too narrowly defined. Meaning, mm-hmm. we think about talent as those who are educated or those who are whatever. And what I was trying to get to back in 2011, 2012 was each of us has something to contribute. Each and every single one of us standing in that spot in the world, only you stand in. Now you mm-hmm. can see the introduction of the idea. And, uh, and I was, I was debating back and forth with my Harvard editor at the time about what's the right word. And we said, the great Sarah Green Carmichael. Let's, let's shout out to Sarah Green Carmichael, one of the best editors I've ever worked with. And I hope to work with again. She's, she's Um, my editor on my blog there as well. Yeah, she really is. She she knows how to bring out the best, right? Yes. She really does. We said it at the same time. There we go. Uh, so happy to work with her. And, and because I'm normally the person who makes fun of the other people, right? I was like, I really want to use existing words. And here's, here's what we ruled out though. It's like talent. I just went through why it didn't work. And then I tried to use unique. And I realized that when we use the word unique, we are often doing a relative context. So if you're a super young person in a room full of, let's say, 50 year olds, um, mm. you could be called unique. But you're not. That's not really what makes you your signature concoction of who you are. So because and it's got that, the social comparison element to it, right? It's a, it's a relative right. idea. Is, right. is that what you and mean? So we, that, that, that's was what exactly was, right. that was what was missing and, so, and unique. Exactly. And so I was trying to figure out, what is that thing that captures that each and every single one of us does it? And then um, that we were also talking about the social era, that in this distributor world, ideas that might before not have been able to scale can now scale. Mm-hmm. So that's where the two parts start to come together. Only NES, right? So distributed connectedness allows you to actually scale up ideas born of an only and actually make an impact. So that's the history of the word. And and what led you to understanding this in a in a in, in terms of your own history and experience and your take on how great ideas come into being in uh, in the world of business and beyond. Well, I'll start with a, a personal story and then move on to work. Um, so when I was young, I was expected to get an arranged marriage because I was raised in a pretty traditional household. And my quote-unquote job at the point there was to marry well so that my mother would be provided for. And uh, at age 18, 19... So this was in the I, United States or elsewhere? It is in the United States. I was born in India but raised in America since I was four and a half, but still in a very traditional household. Mm-hmm. And at one point I come home and the whole house is full of aunties and uncles saying, hey, we're all set up to have you go off and marry this guy. And I said, you know, did somebody ask him if it was okay I got an education? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, this conversation ends badly in the sense that I walk out for what I think is an hour or maybe two in this theatrical thing of saying, now, remember, I was raised with one foot in America and one foot in India in that sense. Uh, I say something like, but I'm the product. And if I'm the product, you can't make the deal without me. And so I walk out of the house trying to get wait, my family you, to... you, like, said that to your aunt and uncle and your mother? Uh, wait. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm the product. I'm the product. I have control. Well, it was really funny, right, because here I was, a future business leaders of America kid, I was the top accounting student in the school. Like I was, I was. You could tell that my future was going to be business because that's how I referred to myself. <laughs> I'm the product. But the point of the story is that yes. my family only viewed me through the lens of woman, Islamic, 
and here's this bucket. They weren't actually noticing what did I care about, what were my passions, or what were my dreams. And and I did that really as a one-off moment of what it feels like to be seen through the lens of a, a bucket instead of the self. But then I went to work at Apple relatively short thereafter, shortly thereafter. And uh, I started off as an admin. And uh, at one point, I got invited to a meeting to come generate ideas for, I don't know, some product launch. And here I showed up with my, you can imagine this, because you know me, I make lists, I show up, I'm prepared, I've done the research, and I'm all excited. And I realized I recommend things, and no one's listening to me. Hmm. And after a while, it becomes really obvious that while I might have been invited to the meeting, my title and my rank were precluding people from actually noticing my ideas. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, when I'm 20-something years old. And so as my career progresses, I keep noticing this over and over again about how we don't notice the ideas because sometimes it comes in the package of a low-status person. Mm-hmm. And we're missing out because of it. And so here, then, we forward in, in uh, trajectory 20-plus years, and I notice that ideas are starting to come from anywhere, and the companies that are able to figure out how to harness those are the ones who are making money. And I sat there and thought, what if we could actually shift everything so that those ideas could be unlocked? And, and, and I think that's why I was paying attention, is because my own history and experiences, mm-hmm. uh, and, and certainly visions and hopes, right? that, that idea that, oh, there are people who can contribute, not just because they don't have the status, but because they actually have an idea worth considering. So unlocking that that prison, really, in which ideas are uh, you know, kept from the full light of, uh, of 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 the market of the world uh, is is a, one way, perhaps, of capturing what it is that you're you're trying to pursue here as your mission with the power of loneliness. Is that is. is that accurate? It is exactly as you said. Uh, you, you said it so well. It's unlocking the hidden potential of the person, uh, which is about how do we celebrate what each person has to give. Of course, it affects our organization. Of course, that affects our economy. And of course, it affects our entire future because it means that there are solutions that humanity most needs just right in front of us, if only we could notice. Yeah. Uh, And it, it of course, affects mental health and physical health and the dynamics of families and the mobility of people who otherwise don't have access uh, to opportunity. It's it's a huge idea. What have you discovered about what uh, really helps your your readers, clients to um, to find uh, a way to to bring their onlyness uh, into into the world and, and and to make a dent. What's what's the where's the place to start? Let me ask it that way. Yeah. So let's start with the story I sold it, which you might remember from a chapter nine um, example. There's a young man named Adrian Triel, and he and he shared how this online crowdsourcing uh, game was started to actually solve a problem in the biosciences. Um, when proteins don't fold correctly, uh, they basically cause problems like Alzheimer's and so on. And so they said, you know, but every person who was trying to solve problems like Alzheimer's kept having to recreate the wheel of how proteins fold. And so he just thought, what if we created, I don't know, like a, what do you call it, like a periodic table of elements of how proteins fold so people could draw on that data. And this is a UW team, University of Washington team that was researching this that Adrian was part of. And he went through a three-step program. He didn't mean to. He just started solving this problem and then 
as we were sitting there talking, I was like, well, what did you do right? And the story mm-hmm. unfolds this way. First of all, he starts going, oh, you know what we should do? We should get PhD students from around the world. Basically, he's thinking cheap labor, like people in China or India or places that are not paid mm-hmm. as well as the U.S. to participate. And he realizes, no, that's not letting enough people in because if you need to know the jargon of the biosciences in order to solve the problem, that still wasn't a big enough pool. So he changed all the mechanisms of the of the game to basically get it so you didn't need to know the technical parts of the field to still participate. So the first thing he does, lowers the jargon field. So he gets a good pool of people then playing and realizes as he's sitting there watching the gamers play. Folded, F-O-L-D-I-T. F-O-L-D-I-T, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says as the, the gamers are playing with each other, they're giving deference to the players who come from better schools or a male mm-hmm. or are people who you would might quote unquote expect to be more credentialed or expect to be more expert. And so he says, Oh, it doesn't make any sense. Like that's those are actually the best players. So he just figured out a way to dial down the things that didn't matter to obscure those things that often get in the way of people noticing real talent. That was the second thing he did. And then still he noticed that people were competing with each other and sort of essentially solving the same problem over and over again instead of building on each other's ideas. He said, well, we should just change the incentive model so that you get more Mm -hmm. points if you help people advance further down the field. And in these three things, I think he's given us a clue for how we might unlock the talent of all of us. First, how do you let everyone participate, not just the people you expect to participate? Mm -hmm. And then second, how do you figure out how to hide the social signals that often cause us to field out people rather than field in people? How do you just lower the, the noise level on that? Everybody wears then, a mask? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what was the research? You probably know it. And I'm, oh gosh, now I wish Adam Grant was sitting in on this interview because he's brilliant whenever he does it. I'm always sitting next to Adam at some meeting and I'll mention the research and quote it correctly but not be able to get to the source. And then Adam will yeah. be like, oh, that's such and such, right? Yeah. Zip, zip, um, it's all it. there at the ready it's in Adam's head. Mm-hmm. It's in Adam's head. But So I will reference the research and hopefully we can click to it later. But the, the research says that when you, um, some, some coders at Reddit uh, were, were actually submitting code and when you could hide the gender of the code coder, it got adopted and used because it was better code. Yeah. And there's been research year after year, decades after decades, that kind of affirms this thesis, right? Sure. Remember the... On the selection, on, hiring. Exactly. Uh, and also, what was it? It was a con- concert um, where they hit a panel and, and someone played music. And the clicking of the woman's heels, they asked women to take off their heels so that person wouldn't know that it was a woman playing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So those are ways in which we can well, manage the signals. And in that, it was a competition. I think that was about. And when when they uh, and, and and the the listeners, the judges were were blind to who the player was, but they could hear that it was a woman because of the clicking of the heels. So when the, she took her her um, her shoes off, and they noticed, then the gender disappeared in terms of their, you know, uh, perception of who was playing, and that that gave uh, that gave her a better chance at winning. It leveled the playing field, right? It changed exactly. so that you could notice what you actually needed to notice and not notice the other stuff. And then the, the third piece, which I'm so struck by, and of course, uh, you, given all your work in understanding collaborative models, uh, will go back to over and over again, is how do we reward the cultural context of performance, not just the individual IP or IQ of a person? 
how do we celebrate building on each other's ideas? Because that is so much of the kind of work we need to do. And mm-hmm. so Fold It is just one of the many stories in the book uh, that shows it was such a beautiful process to write the book, too, because each story revealed something new to me. And in studying each of them, because I studied over 300 examples to find the 20 I wanted to feature in the book, um, because I was looking for that repeatable pattern uh, and then which story best exemplified that repeatable pattern. Uh, but I really felt like each story revealed to me what, how to find onlyness in each person. And just... You did a lot of research, and, and the stories in this book are really quite compelling and illustrating the big ideas. What's your favorite story? Oh, that's like saying, what's your favorite child? I know. I, I thought yeah. it would be difficult. That's that's why I'm asking you. Now, so <laughs> I, I will tell you one story that so deeply moved me in it. There was a story of some Boy Scouts who were trying to change the policy, uh, the national policy of the Boy Scouts, which was really discriminatory. It basically said, if you were uh, gay and a Boy Scout, you were not allowed to win the Eagle Scout Award. Uh, you were also not to, allowed to be gay if you were... Um, a Cub Scout leader. Mm-hmm. And these scouts really found this policy uh, sad. In one case, uh, one of the kids named Zach Walls, his two moms had been so active for something like 11 years mm-hmm. helping him be a good scout and learn the values of scouts, which includes honor and truth and dignity. And, uh, and at one point, he doesn't accomplish the goal of changing the Boy Scouts policy but he turns around and figures out how to support other Boy Scouts uh, who are trying to do the same thing. And over the course of several years, it takes another couple of years after Zach starts the process of petitioning and advocating and stirring the pot till another Boy Scout is actually able to uh, convince the, the Scouts. And it shows me the power of relationships. Mm-hmm. That loneliness is not about loneliness, but about how do you find those people with whom you you share that deep meaning of purpose, and then all of a sudden you're no longer lonely in the world at all. You're so deeply connected, and that's the way actually that these fresh new ideas can come about and make change in the world. Right. Never doubt that uh, a small group of people can change the world. In fact, it's the only way that it's ever been changed is by, uh, I think that was Margaret Mead, who uh, many years ago observed that in societies around the world, what it takes is commitment to a shared purpose, and it's finding those people, right? So, so let's say you're you're someone. So somebody's listening to this show right now, Nilla. For what would you tell them uh, about an idea that they might be percolating on or burning inside, and and uh, they don't know how to get it out there, or they don't feel like they're being heard? What's the where would where would someone begin? actually just look at your own life story and to um, your own history and experience, visions and hope. That's how I define onlyness. Each of us stands in that spot in the world, only you stand in a function of your history and experience, visions and hopes. And I find that mm-hmm. sort of too big to handle, right? So sometimes the way I kind of characterize it is, what if there's a light bulb above your head that every time you walk into the room, the room turns, let's say, turmeric orange or mallard blue, and yet for you, it doesn't seem that darn special because you're in the room and it's mallard blue. You're like, isn't that just the way the world is? Hmm. And so I often ask people actually instead to turn to your friends and say, hey, when I'm in the room, what does the room look like, so to speak? Right. So hmm. what is it that I bring that maybe no one else brings? And what do you see me contributing? Where do you see me lighting up? And that might provide a clue also for you 
what is it you want to go chase? And then the message I say to the person just, you know, is to listen to your own intuitions and go, gosh, you know that thing that I'm always going, oh, that should get fixed? That's the sign inside of you that says that's what you're called to go serve. Mm-hmm. And so, so once you've identified, if you're fortunate enough to find a way to articulate, put into words, uh, or in some other form of symbolic image, uh, you know, the, the idea that only you see or only you see and feel so passionately about, then what? What does one do then to start to take that wild and crazy idea and bring it to the world and try to make a dent in it? What do you do next? The first part was about claiming it, even if no one else sees it. And in fact, one of the insights I got after writing the book, too, is that almost everyone would start telling me their story, and I'd be like, oh, tell me, you know, how'd you do X, Y, or Z? Mm-hmm. And they would start telling me a story, and I would always have this little moment of, that doesn't seem quite right. Hmm. And I would keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And if I had to draw like a timetable from a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being where we were in the story and 1 being where it started... It was almost as if everyone was starting at three or four or five. Hmm. In their telling of the story. In their telling of the story. Mm -hmm. And as I backed them up a little further, three and then two and then one, there was always this moment where they saw it, where no one else saw it, but because they gave themselves permission to Hmm. explore it, to develop it, to even understand it, right, for themselves, Mm -hmm. um, they they wouldn't have gotten to the next phase, which is how do you find the people who care about the same thing as you? Mm-hmm. And so that early phase, in fact, I used uh, Hermania Abara's research uh, to back this up. She had lovely language around it. Hermania Abara is a leadership expert oh, at yeah. London, London Business School. Good friend of mine. Um, Been on the show here, for sure. Yeah. Yes, her, so her ideas are... Uh, so, so what did you learn from Hermania? She said... Um, she said, this is like how you build up a scaffolding of a house. Before you can occupy a space, you first have to make sure it's safe enough for you to go into. And I was like, oh, that completely mm. makes sense. Um, and so that's what you're doing in that early phase. And you're mostly giving yourself permission and learning more and exploring more mm-hmm. before you go to the next phase. And so, so I really want to acknowledge that phase because it's a piece that most people would skip. Um, the next piece is That's really go, important. So one of the things that you say is just because it's marginal doesn't mean it's not meaningful. Elaborate on, on what that sentence means for this process of discovery and ex- initial exploration. You know, the, the story that, that brings that, uh, the story I want to tell to bring that to life is a story of Kimberly Bryant. Kimberly was this um, uh, woman who graduated from Vanderbilt University and as an engineer and first woman in her family to do that, super excited when she joins DuPont. And her manager says to her, uh, as she's inter- as he's introducing Kim to the whole his you know the team, says, "Oh, with Kim, we got a twofer." Mm-hmm. And my heart just plummets every time I tell the story because a twofer, Kimberly, a twofer, two for one, a two for one. But in this case, what he means is as a black woman mm-hmm. in tech, mm-hmm. and. Um, so Kim is just devastated because, of course, what that person has done is negated her mm-hmm. and shown her by her stereotype, not by her passions and what she had hoped to build at DuPont. Mm-hmm. Um, and later on, a couple more years later, she has this experience with her daughter, who's getting, um, who's really good at coding and is going to a summer camp over at Stanford University and notices it's mostly white, mostly male, and the kid is mostly ignored. And um, and the daughter comes home and basically 
explains the story after the week at camp and and Kim says, you know, this should not be. And she starts literally gathering old computers and designing curriculum and slowly but surely building just literally, literally a community at her kitchen table to help her daughters code and her daughter's friends to code. And this starts out as essentially, you know, anyone looking at it would be like, yeah, what's that? And since then, she's trained over 10,000 young girls um, to code and contribute in an economy that will have, I think the, the number is 1.6 million coding jobs will exist by 2020. So she's making a dent. And she did that based on this this passion and her own experience and then what she saw in her daughter. Right. And something that somebody else could have defined as marginal, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody could have said, well, there aren't that many black women in tech. They must not want to be here or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Whatever, excuse my language, but whatever bullshit line someone would say, mm-hmm. um, she could have said, oh, well, then it's not that important. But she listened to her own truth and determined for herself what would be meaningful and then acted on that. And mm-hmm. that's what actually is such a big part of how we create the dent we want to see in the world. You know, for we are uh, basically uh, out of time here. Unfortunately, it's flown. I, I want to give you uh, one more shot, though, to just summarize, if you could. What's the one thing that you want to make sure our listeners know about what it is that you're trying to do with this onlyness idea movement, if you will, and and what they can do to use it? One sentence, huh? I wrote a whole book. So, uh, <laughs> I know. I, wanna... I know. <laughs> Um, I think I think there's a moment in our history today where we can actually find the other people who care about the same things as us, which mm-hmm. was something really 5, 10, 15 years ago we didn't have. I know, it's amazing. So it really is, and that's the new part of this idea. I think we've mm-hmm. always wanted mm-hmm. to have meaning. I think we've always believed there's a light in each person. Now the question is, can that actually become a way that we fuel our economy, our lives, our society, our communities? And that's why I wanted to come on the conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Nilifer, thank you so much for being my guest tonight. How can listeners find out more about this book and about uh, your work generally? Well, so the website, Nilifer Merchant, my full name, N-I-L-O-F-E-R, merchant.com. And the book is available everywhere that bookstores are selling books nowadays. And uh, it's being published by Viking and released on August 29th. Thank you so much, Nilifer, and congratulations on this great achievement. I look forward to seeing you again soon and uh, get you back on the show to tell us more about your adventures in loneliness. Thanks so much, Nilifer. Thanks, Dave. Omar is calling from California. Welcome to Work and Life, Omar. Hi. I, so this idea sort of brings up something I've been dealing with, which is the idea of the individual versus the sort of collective. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm in healthcare, and we very often are trying to get, especially our physicians, to all come to the same table and sit down and say, this is the path we're moving on, and this is what we need to do to work together to improve care. And I often run into the problem of, each individual person wanting to take on their own task and what their own uh, sort of uh, yep. individual need is. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you bring those two ideas together? How do you bridge that gap between wanting to allow people to yes. you know develop their ownness versus getting everyone on the same page to do something that's really important and not fracturing the system and yeah. getting nothing done because everybody's moving in a different direction. 
Omar, this is a huge question. Of course, it is, it, it is the fundamental issue in, in organizational life, right, is how you bring together a group of people who are, of course, different and to, and to get them to use their energy and effort to pers- and their talent, their skills to pursue, uh, to pursue a common interest. That is the great challenge. Uh, and, uh, you know, millions of words have been written to try to understand and explain that. I think fundamentally, uh, and I, I, I teach our course uh, here at Wharton on leading effective teams in our MBA and undergraduate programs. And that's, that's of course, the central question. Um, and it's not easy. It's always something that must be attended to. But, you know, a starting point is really clarifying so that everybody understands what is it that we're doing together and why does it matter? And so tell me, does that make sense to you as a you know high level, big idea? And what I'm really interested in, Omar, is what you're doing to try to wrestle that one down. Like, how, does it, how does that play out for you and what, what have you tried that's worked? Well, I, you know, I'm going through some some change management sort of education and and sort of really focusing on the why and trying to build the urgency. Mm-hmm. And it's um, one of the things that's been really difficult for me in particular is, um, should I get a group together that doesn't have as much necessary power within the organization, but is very energized around the idea? Or should I try and grab people who have power and change their minds to, uh, you know, to get them on the same page, to get them moving in the direction I'm trying to take the organization? Or should I just move forward and not have everybody on the same page but get done what I can because that's what I, I can get done without, you know, having the whole group working together? Uh, you asked a number of important questions in that very important question. And, uh, you know, on the latter point, I would simply say taking action where you have discretion, where you have room to move and you you believe you've got enough support to take a small step forward uh, and then to, to find out how other people are affected by that, to gather data, real data from the people, you know, the stakeholders who you, who this this change would be affecting, small steps and checking in with people and then adjusting, adjusting so that it better meets their agendas is a great place to start. Um, so I would urge you to take that idea seriously. And if you've got competing factions that don't listen to each other, this is my response now to the first part of your question, Omar. Maybe there's a way for the people who don't typically have power but are energized and have a voice to somehow have their voice heard by the people in positions of legitimate authority or formal authority so that they can feel the need for change and feel and hear the ideas that are bubbling up. What do you think about that? Yeah, and I think that's really good. And I mean, I'm I'm going to a meeting right now. I mean, this is so apropos for me. I'm going to a meeting right now where Mm -hmm. We built it around a, a group of powerful individuals within my organization, mm-hmm. but they've all just sort of dropped off one by one because they've been pulled into other things. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're literally going to have the conversation in about 15 minutes as to do we grab people that are interested and energized or do we keep trying to get the people who have the organizational sort of leverage and power back to the table through 
a redefinition of the why and building that urgency again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're heading towards the get the people who are energized, the people that you know see motiv- are motivated around it, because it's it's just uh, uh, it seems to be an easier path to take. And then we'll see what the end result is. You want to go where the energy for change is, and to amplify it, and to and to extend their voice into the into the you know the, the decision making body if you can. So so creating channels, giving those people opportunities to actually express what they see and their ideas. We're, I mean, I have no idea what the case is about here, but the idea of connecting the people like at the bottom with the people at the top, that's, that's really the main job of the person in the middle. So if that's you, then that's what you got to do is to find a path that connects the top and the bottom. If you're in an organization where you've got a common purpose, you want to you know, create an opportunity for those people to bring their ideas forward to the people at the top. So do you have a way to do that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, so I'm basically, that's my, position is physician liaison so Uh my job is to sort of bring that up and i've been doing it just with my own voice no 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 no. speaking with you i'm 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 sort of changing that that idea to bringing them and uh to the conversation yes i'm not sure how exactly to do that yet but it it uh it could happen yeah well then that sounds very promising omar because no you want to take yourself out and unblock and because you don't have any credibility for the people below or the people above I mean not any but you have much less than those two sets of constituents so your job is to get out of the way unblock and create that channel of communication in whatever way is going to work for them so I hope that this is successful for you Omar uh, and I would love to hear what happens so perhaps you can either write to me Friedman at Wharton.upen.edu, or you can call back when we talk about something like this some other time. Yeah, that's and actually, I'm thinking about taking the Wharton healthcare oh. uh, like three weekend course. So maybe cool. I'll even get to tell you in person if you're involved in that. That'd be awesome, Omar. Thank you so right, much. Thank you, sir. Yeah, good luck. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nilifer Merchant and that it stimulated some new ideas for action. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. It's pretty simple. Spend a couple minutes simply asking yourself this question. What can I do that no one in the world other than me can do? A variant of this if that one's too difficult, or you just can't come up with anything, is what is it that I see from where I alone stand that no one else can see in the way that I see it? Now, as you're doing this, don't judge yourself as, as you're conjuring a response to these questions or one or the other question, just let your mind be free to come up with an answer or maybe two or even three answers. Don't hold back. What comes up? This is just for you. All right. Well, uh, I'd love to hear from you as I always love to hear from listeners about what you're thinking in reaction to our show. You can tweet at Stu Friedman. Or email me at Friedman 
at wharton.upenn.edu. And for more information about Nilifer Merchant, follow her on Twitter, as I do. That's at Nilifer, N-I-L-O-F-E-R. And check out her website, where you will find her famous TED Talk and more. That's nilifermerchant.com, N-I-L-O-F-E-R-M-E-R-C-H-A-N-T, C-H-A-N-T.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.